If you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, to chapter 1. Now, Lord willing, next week, as we move to 2 a.m. services, we are going to resume our catechetical sermons in the morning. And that means that this series, looking at what it means to be human, is going to take a pause. We'll probably return to this in the summer. Now, where have we been up to this point? Maybe you are visiting this morning, or it's simply helpful now and then to step back and get a bird's eye view. What have we been seeing on what it means to be human? First of all, we've seen that it matters very much how we define what a human is, because everyone says they know what a human is. We are humans, and therefore we're authorities on the matter. But then we live very different lives all throughout the world, indicating we have different ideas about what it means to be human. We've seen that to be a human means that you are a creation of God and that you have a unique origin, a unique object to be an image bearer of God, and that the way that we image God is by being dualistic or being a dualism of body and soul. And these two natures come together as one person. They're meant to be together. And as an individual, then, you represent God's character his attributes, his will in the world. And then just last week, we looked at how God's design from the very beginning was for there to be a greater good for the individual that is realized only by right relationships with other people. And that brings us up to the point that we're at this morning, where we are going to meet the first other person than the man Adam. Now, the subject that we're going to touch on this morning is one that is embroiled increasingly in controversy in the world, and even increasingly in the church as well. As I address this matter, my first priority is to be faithful. But I do want to say I will strive to speak sensitively. I realize there are people of all ages here, and God's word is able to speak in a way that is meant to be received by the whole covenant community. With that being said, let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Well, first we'll hear the word, and then we'll ask his blessing. Look at me at verse 26 of Genesis for our main text. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thus, since the reading of God's word, let's ask for his favor. Father, this morning we desire to receive... Through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, truth for our lives. Call us to be what you have intended us to be. You who spoke and the world was made, speak again and remake us. Lord's day by Lord's day as we sit under the transforming power of the scriptures. Give glory to Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Imagine for a moment a school, and the school has a modest property and a fence that runs around it. The children are able to play out there. And then one school year, there's 
a new school administrator and maybe a few new teachers, and they get to speaking. They're looking out the window one day as they're working on some things, and they see some kids out at recess. They get to talking about how, wouldn't it be so nice if the children had additional room to play? Wouldn't that be great? Because it's not the, the biggest boundary set around it. And they propose the idea, why don't we move the fence? We'll enlarge the area, and the kids will have more room to play. And that all sounds very good. But you have to step back and think for a moment. Not every boundary exists simply to limit freedom. Boundaries exist for other reasons. Sometimes to maintain life, to increase the likelihood of well-being. Even so, God sets boundaries in nature that are for human good. Sometimes people look at those boundaries and they just see limitations upon freedom. And they say, I want to explore and I want others to explore. But the boundaries are there for good. And one such example of a boundary that God has placed in nature is the distinction that's described here in Genesis and really throughout the entire Bible, the distinction between man and woman. And we're going to see this morning as we look in Genesis and elsewhere that to be human... To be human means to be made male or female by God. To be made male or female and to be given by God a corresponding set of characteristics and a calling as a man or a woman. And this is ultimately for the glory of God and the good of people. It's not accidental, but it's for our good. And so what we're going to do this morning is really look at this under two main ideas. First, we're going to look at simply the fact that the Bible clearly distinguishes male from female, and so should we. And then second, we're going to look how God preserves essential unity, essential unity between the being and the calling of human beings. And then, by way of conclusion at the end, we'll reflect a little bit on a few reasons that I trust will help believers to not only respect, but to rejoice in the fact that God has created this distinction. This is a beautiful thing that Christians of all people ought to be in the world celebrating, even as others may at times wonder, what is the point of this fence? Why has God put this wall up, this distinction between male and female? We're going to see it's very much for our good. Now, if you look with me at verse 27, notice some of the words here. So God created the man in his own image. The word man here in Hebrew is the exact same Hebrew word as Adam. They're interchangeable. And it's based on a root Hebrew word, Adama. So Adam is, if you will, named soil with a capital S. He is earthling par excellence. He is a man of the ground. And throughout the Old Testament, the word man is used universally for men and women when it's just speaking generically, very much like the English word man when we encounter the word mankind. It's speaking of all people. Now, if you turn over and look at Genesis 5, verse 2, notice what it says there. Male and female, he created them. 
And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. We should not feel embarrassment as Christians to use a universal term for both sexes. And we have much in common, one of those being that we bear the image of God. And because men and women bear the image of God together, both have inherent worth in God's sight. Neither is more valuable in God's sight as a being. And yet, immediately after, in Genesis 1, the text introduces an important distinction. Look with me there in verse 28. Genesis 1, 28. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible clearly distinguishes male from female. On the one hand, I feel aggrieved that we should need to spend a point of a whole sermon on this subject. But we'll do it. Because these are the times that we live in, when it must be reiterated that certain things exist in nature and are real. Male and female, he created them. Start with the word female. Now, this word here is not simply a modified form of the same word for Adam or man. Rather, the Hebrew term used here is a completely distinct, different term. If you were to go to Halot, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, which is the academic standard for Hebrew for that time, you would find the definition that the word for female here is, quote, woman considered as a sexually distinct being from man. Because that's how the word was used throughout the Bible. Female here as distinct. But then you can compare it to other places in Scripture. I won't ask you to turn, but listen carefully. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 16. Deuteronomy 4.16 says, Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself, talking about an idol, not simply any statue, making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. What's presumed here? Men and women, male and females, have distinct likenesses. Likeness here meaning external characteristics. Things on the form of the body that make it possible to distinguish one from the other. Now, what are some of these distinct characteristics that we could think about together? You could start with the more conventional ones, things that are apparent even when people are clothed. How would you determine whether or not somebody is male or female? Clothed, you're looking at them. Any number of things, and it's not reducible to any one, it's taken as a package. Things like, for instance, women tend to have wider hips. Men tend to have longer limbs. If you look at the distribution of height for women and men, there's some overlap. Some of the tallest women are taller than the shortest men. There's overlap, but there's a general distribution that's distinct for height. And many others could be added to that about general secondary characteristics. Modern science has not erased this. If anything, it's affirmed the opposite. While on the one hand, modern medicine has revealed that there are instances where somebody has characteristics opposite to their sex, such as a genetic disorder, it has all the more shown us that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of markers that are unique to each of the two, male and female. For instance, chromosomes that many of us are familiar with, but even beyond that, testosterone. Now, I am not a geneticist or a biologist, but I'll quote one for you. Harvard biologist Dr. Carol Hooven talks about the distribution of testosterone in males and females. 
And she is by no means sympathetic to the Christian's perspective of some of the ethical implications. She's just stating the data as she reads it. And her data is based on a meta-analysis of many, 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 many studies. And this is recent. She took every study that they could get their hands on for Harvard that has considered testosterone in human beings. And she says that the distribution of testosterone for men and women is not overlapping like two mountains that are kind of sharing a base. But she says, quote, it is like two mountain ranges separated by a vast plain that men have on average 10 to 20 times the amount of testosterone. Why does that matter? Because it accounts for things that were known from ancient times, even though people didn't know why. The way that God has made people causes that men as a general rule, have significantly denser bones, significantly denser muscle, and longer limbs. Those will have implications in a real world. Some of those implications get obscured by the present moment that we live in. For the last about 80 years, Western society has moved more and more into a situation where we do less manufacturing here. And we do less agriculture where our hands are on heavy things. And we do more service-oriented jobs, and we do more desk-oriented jobs. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that, but it does obscure the reality of the differences of our bodies. You can think, oh yeah, we're basically the same, we probably can carry and lift the same things. But it becomes more apparent in sports, and that's part of the reason why so much is being made about sports. For instance, the world record for powerlifting, for Women is about 1,500 pounds. This is the strongest woman in the world. The best the world offers as far as just powerlifting. Meanwhile, the record for men is fully double, more than double that. Incredible. John McEnroe got in some trouble of a sort some time ago because he pointed out that at that time the greatest female tennis player in the world would, according to him, quote, place somewhere like 700th behind men if she was ranked equally against men. And he was challenged, are you saying something's wrong with women? And he said, no, they're just, they're different. Serena Williams herself was then asked about it, whether she was offended. She said, it would be a joke for me to play with men. She acknowledged that. Because we can celebrate what people are in themselves. We don't have to treat them as identical and then say, oh, something's wrong with them. No, they're different. I don't complain because, say, uh, a Porsche doesn't haul as much as a Dodge Ram. They're different, and they are fine in that. But we have to acknowledge these differences, and science has only affirmed that. But more fundamentally, in the text, God draws the distinction in a way that we can all recognize by certain characteristics related to procreation. If you look at chapter 2... The whole problem of the narrative, and there's a problem in the narrative that it's working towards a solution, is that whereas the other animals have a procreative partner, someone with whom they can be fruitful and multiply, the man does not. And what is the solution? In verse 22 of chapter 2, the solution to the problem of procreation is the Lord made a woman. Different term here. Made a woman and brought her to the man. 
And so what you see in this is that males, and this is affirmed throughout the Bible as the standard, males are people whom God makes with a natural ability to beget life outside of themselves. I'll say it again. Males are people whom God makes with a natural ability to beget life outside of themselves. We're talking ordinarily when there's no intrusion of a genetic disorder, etc. We'll come to that. Conversely, females are people whom God makes with a natural ability to bear and nourish life. This is the distinction found in Scripture. The terms are always used that way for each in Scripture. You cannot find in a book that if you printed it at size 12 font on normally thick paper, so it didn't seem like a small book to trick you and to think you're getting yourself into something small when you pick up a, a Bible. A Bible is a lot of books, 66 books. And in the whole thing... Males and females are treated the same in terms of what they are. Males are those who beget life outside of themselves. Females are those who beget life from within. And so the Bible clearly distinguishes these two. But then we have to go beyond that. And that brings us to our second main idea here. Not only does the Bible distinguish between male and female physiological characteristics, but it also teaches that God preserves essential unity between our being and our calling as men and women. It preserves, God preserves essential unity between our being and our calling as men and women. So what does that mean? That means that when God makes someone and he gives them a male body, he regards them as a man. When God gives someone a female body, he regards her as a woman. He chooses it has to be underscored. The entirety of scripture operates on this understanding. This is not an area that people can just say, well, you know, it's open to different interpretations. You will interpret yourself out of believing in the Bible entirely if you follow consistently the hermeneutic that says this doesn't matter. It's about the hermeneutic, the way of interpreting. That's what a hermeneutic is. It's a lens by which you approach and interpret things. What does this mean then? It means consequently that man and woman are not identities that anyone but God chooses. Man and woman are not identities that you will choose. They are responsibilities that God has conferred upon you and gifts that God has appointed appropriately to you. But they are not something that we choose. God didn't first consult Adam as some kind of androgynous spirit and say, what kind of body would you like? What do you want to be? When he makes the woman, it says he simply made the woman and brought her to him. He didn't simply even make, quote, a female and then let Eve decide whether she's a woman or a man. To be a female was to be made a woman, and she had no say in that. And yet, we as Christians begin at the belief that God is the good, the wise, the beautiful intelligence behind all. And so it's, there's no mistake in what he has done. Nor is this something that we intuit subjectively. And children, by that I mean you don't go searching in your heart and check your feelings to find out whether you're a man or a woman. Rather, the method that God has given to us is to judge by what he has presented in terms of our characteristics. Physiologically, do you present as male or female in your body, the one that God has given you? Then take for granted his will that he has called you to be a man or a woman respectively. Somebody might raise the, objective, uh, the objection, and it would be understandable. 
The objection. But aren't there some cases where it is harder to distinguish? Where a person who mostly has, we'll say, female physiological characteristics also has certain characteristics that you ordinarily associate with men, or vice versa. This is where, as Christians, one, we have to take into account something that we call the noetic effects of the fall. It has nothing to do with the man called Noah. This is N-O-E, noetic. The noetic effects of the fall is talking about the consequences of sin are not just guilt, but that the world bears corruption, entropy in body, corruption in spirit. And so things are disordered in the world. Things are not as they should be. And God uses that, as it were, as his megaphone, as one of many ways to get our attention. Things are not as they should be. And so we can acknowledge that such circumstances exist, but they exist in a way that is not unlike the fact that Jesus addresses a man who is born blind. And Jesus doesn't simply say, well, that is your new and permanent identity. For a time, somebody may be blind, but in the resurrection, they won't be. And to think that all of these disorders will persist into the resurrection would be flawed. Our doctrine of the fall is such that we understand that maleness and femaleness can, to some extent, be obscured, but not obliterated. Not obliterated. And again, Scripture stands as primary authority, but it is affirmed by what we find in nature. We trust God's book of creation as well. I am not a scientist. I did spend a considerable amount of time during graduate studies looking specifically at that one question. How does genetic disorder manifest? Are there truly people who have something like a 50-50 spread of male and female physiological characteristics? I am not aware of a single, and I would challenge anyone, not aware of a single instance that comes anywhere close to a 50-50 spread. Disorders are disorders, but that doesn't mean that you look at the person and say, well, they're 99% genetically male, and in 1% something is off, and therefore they have a past to choose. Or that worse, they are condemned to uncertainty about God's will for them. Left to wonder, what am I? God's word calls us to judge by what predominates. Otherwise, how on earth could the church for thousands of years have upheld the regulations that he put in place? And there are regulations in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that govern life relative to men and to women. In the Old Testament, you find Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, saying, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. To be clear, it's not talking about you know, a woman who puts on the coat of her, of her husband as they're walking around at night because she's cold. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the principle of adopting or destroying the distinction, adopting contrary to what you are, maleness or femaleness, or destroying the distinction. And God says it's an abomination to erase this boundary that he's put in the world for our good. Titus and Timothy both stipulate that the offices in the church are limited to men. That is not because of competency. It's because of differences in calling. There are, ask elders, ask me concerning my wife, are there areas where we go, man, our wives would be more gifted for what we are doing in this room right now. That they would have something to say 
Yeah, but God didn't call him to that. He lays different responsibilities and burdens on different people. As we're going to see, it has everything to do with being a portrayal of the distinction between Christ and his church. It's not the worthiness of the man. It's the distinction of the calling. And so these instances where somebody can say, but isn't there sometimes more difficulty? They're not a pass to choose for yourself, according to the Bible. The community has to be able to make a judgment. And the community can't look in your heart or anyone else's heart. Nor are they a sentence of uncertainty. And that's so important for our children to understand and children out in the world who sometimes may feel, they look in the mirror and they feel one way or another awkward, they feel in between, and that is everything from about age maybe nine arbitrarily up to age 18 perhaps for some people. It's an in-between stage of life. You're changing. And the last thing you need is somebody telling you, well, you don't really know what you are because you don't look the way you want to look. It's a death sentence for so many people to be raised in this environment that is increasingly calling everyone to be uncertain about absolutely everything. It's a form of abuse in itself even to raise the idea that this person is not what they have been for years and years and years. And so God has placed this distinction in the world. It is his will that we respect it. It is his will that we rejoice in it. But I want to lay before you, by way of conclusion, three reasons. There are other reasons. We're going to look at just three here. Why we should respect and rejoice in these things. The most obvious is captured in a quote. It's usually attributed to Mark Twain. And the quote is, What would men be without women? Pretty scarce, I reckon. (laughs) The mandate to multiply simply cannot take place for Adam and Eve without one another. And while that mandate does not rest on us as individuals in the same way as it did on them, we have freedom whether we choose to have children or not, nevertheless, God has ensured the continuation of the species by placing blessings around procreation. Even the physiological distinction of male from female becomes a source of delight to those who marry. And then he gives promises like Proverbs 18.22. He who finds finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Not whoever finds a spouse. He who finds a wife. God places these blessings in order to maintain our species until the number of the elect are full. And simply because he delights to see the world filled with his image bearers. A second reason is for the benefit of the children who are born. Malachi chapter 2 verse 15 regarding the sexual union of man and woman. Malachi 2:15. The Lord speaking says, "Did I not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring." Malachi 2:15. In our current moment, and by moment I mean the last 70 years, and 70 years children is a moment compared to thousands of years, millennia. In our present moment, a variety of circumstances have come about to decouple the idea of male and female as sexual beings from the idea of procreation and children. 
as if these two don't have to be associated. They are associated. The Lord says, why did I make them one? What was I seeking? Godly offspring. Again, I'm not trying to lay a burden on every individual that if you don't have children, you're sinning in some way. But the Lord yearns for and desires children, and not just children, but godly children. And it's so clear from the creational pattern, and then even Jesus' own life, that he's provided an adoptive father, that God's creative ideal, the right environment for children, what he desires is one father and one mother. Now, it is true that a lot of circumstances lead in this fallen world, to children not having both. And that doesn't mean it's a death sentence upon them if they don't have that, that they're condemned to not succeed, etc. Although it is worth saying, when all other factors are accounted for, the single most significant determining factor statistically for whether a child ends up in jail, whether a child excels career-wise, is whether or not they had two parents in the home. Check that. God can work extraordinarily, and we should, as a Christian community, come around those families where there is not both a mother and a father. And we do that by things like you saw this morning, gyms or cadets. Things like that are one of the ways that we try to do that. But it means we should not normalize or trivialize this issue. We should not normalize single-sex households as an equally healthy alternative. It's not the ideal. Husbands, take care of your marriage Take care of your marriage. Malachi goes on to say that when divorce happens, it's violence to women and children. And so we rejoice in the distinction because God wants to give children both a mother and a father. Lastly, here's the third and final reason. Because in making this distinction between male and female, the Lord has embedded a profound picture of the gospel in nature itself. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Apostle here is talking about how Christians are to relate in the community in different levels. And here he comes to husbands and wives, beginning at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And then verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. What is the mystery here? That one man and one woman can come together in a loving, 
lasting union. And as a consequence, there should be fruit. As a consequence, there should be new life. Not just a friendship, but additional life. Now, not every human marriage realizes that because some people can't conceive. Again, the world has fallen. But the picture from the beginning with Adam and Eve was one man and one woman coming together. And what would happen? Multiplication. This is profound. From the beginning, God embedded in nature his plan. He knew that we would fall. He knew there would be sin. And yet it's a picture of the way that Christ chooses through death to redeem his bride and then to unite himself with her. And truly, in another sense, he's united forever as our covenant redeemer. To unite himself with her and then by the spirit, even as we saw in Malachi, given a portion of the spirit in order that there would be godly offspring. Through the spirit comes all the new births that we discover in the world. Spiritual birth. Nobody is born again spiritually without some ministry of the church having passed on the word of the gospel. Every new believer is born in the womb of the church by the power of Christ. These analogies of male and female become deeply gospel-oriented. And that's why any venturing, I want to be careful in what I say, any venturing into erasing or mixing the two is wittingly or unwittingly a rejection of the picture of a Christ who is not like us. Truly distinct. There is beauty and distinction. Every woman you see, every woman you see bears in her very being a testimony to the fact that Christ would have a church for himself and save her and love her forever. Every man bears in his being and he can't change it no matter how much he scars it, dresses it up, changes it. He bears in his being and calling that there is a Christ, God come among us, who's not like us, but wants to be one with us, and there will be fruit. The most rabid anti-gospel person in the world cannot ever erase from themselves some kind of testimony to the very gospel that we proclaim. And the Lord wants us then to respect and to rejoice in our differences. They're good. They're different, but they're good. May the Lord help us. Let's ask that even now. Heavenly Father, we bless you for having made us what we are. We confess, Lord, at times perhaps we are frustrated, but the frustrations come from the brokenness of the world under the fall. We pray that you would cause men to be more like Jesus Christ, to be full of gracious love and tenderness, not to abuse whatever you have given to them, but to use it for ministry. We pray for our beloved sisters, Father, that you would fill them with every fruit of your spirit. Help them to know how to fulfill such a high calling as being especially signet to the role of the church. Father in heaven, we ask for our children that you would preserve them from confusion and error, the delusion of the enemy, and that you would fill your Christian people with abounding compassion to remember that our enemies are not people, not specific 
politicians, ultimately. Our enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us to fight spiritually for the sake of all human beings until the day when you draw the final line and we know where in each one stands, whether they have known you or have hated you. Help us to be faithful, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.